Speak, Lord, for your servants here. Amen. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen to that. Malware and hackers and spies, oh my. And if it's not the relatively smaller cyber worries these days, like your email, your passwords being bought and sold by the highest hooded bidder on the dark web, there are security sites like IdentityIQ.com, for example, that will check into even your bigger concerns that you might have, including the increasing possibility of your digital identity being stolen. And the dreaded question accompanying that, has your bank account been compromised? Whether they're from Russia, China, or homegrown right here in the good old USA, it seems those digital demons are everywhere. So if you think your Facebook page, your X or Twitter, X Twitter account, or your YouTube channel is reading your mind with finely tuned and targeted ads that keep flashing you, um, they almost are reading your mind. Our opening lines for confession on page four of our bulletin this morning, they went like this. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Well, suddenly, you realize there is very little you need to change in the psalmist's description there in order for it to read true, not just for God, but for Google. Chilling thought is that. But of course, Google's search algorithm, as well as those newer AI, artificial intelligence, uh, applications said to be revolutionizing computer technology today, as good as they all may get at predicting exactly my lying down or getting up or acquainting themselves with all my ways down to my brand preferences that I didn't even know I had. Yet as good as they all may get, they still do not know me. In fact, they don't know anything, do they? They're just a bunch of sophisticated combinations of ones and zeros. Um, now, granted, they're very sophisticated in that combination, mind you, enough to fuel, uh, fool rather future generations, most likely. So it could be a very scary future for our young ones growing up in this country, in this world. But the point is, they don't know me like my God knows me. They can't hear my confession on page four, or for that matter, the silent confession of my heart, spoken any time, anywhere, like my God can hear. Uh, maybe even in the most busy uh, moments of my day when I'm just kind of down. My iPhone now can detect an irregular heartbeat. And by the way, that's an uh, advancement in technology for which I truly am very grateful. It might come in handy someday. But in the middle of those sleepless nights, say, when my soul is perhaps more attuned to the Holy Spirit's leading in prayer, uh, my iPhone might as well be 200 miles away from those private thoughts. 
private thoughts to which the Lord God, who made me in his image, and to him alone are all my thoughts and prayers privy. Now, that could be a scary prospect in and of itself, right? God, knowing all my thoughts. Why is that scary, potentially? Well, Jeremiah said it best. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He goes on. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, from Jeremiah 17. See what I mean about scary? With piercing vision, the Lord meets out his judgment based on what he sees. And sometimes we mistakenly think that our hearts are safe haven or a place of refuge. We can hide out there. We might say things like, no, I rarely give any alms to the poor. Seldom do I tithe to the church, nor do I support any mission effort. But the Lord knows my heart. He knows I believe in all that and would give my time, talent, and treasure. But with false comfort, we might recall such passages as 1 Samuel 16, a bit down the road from today's reading in Samuel, where we now find the prophet and judge Samuel looking for Israel's next king. Perhaps you recall this. Now, the Lord warns Samuel that looks can be deceiving. The Lord says this, he does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And if we are still at that point tempted by that to take more comfort than is warranted by that passage that God looks in our heart, well, it's our Lord Jesus Christ himself in the Gospels who lays out the true story of the heart. Quote, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceitfulness, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness, unquote. That's not the most flattering description of human achievement, is it? But it does explain a lot of things when you look around this world. Yes, we were originally created in the image of our creator, God, who knows us so well, better than we will ever know ourselves, but we lost it. We lost it all. Innocence, freedom, paradise, friendship and companionship with our creator. End of story? Hardly. Man may have lost the pristine, holy image of God, that's true, with his heart turned dark and twisted in on itself. Man was left groping in the darkness, having lost sight of God, who is our light, altogether. And to make matters even worse, before they get better, darkest hours before the dawn, as they say, the situation in first century Palestine was like unto the way Samuel describes the times that he entered uh, during his lifetime. Quote from Samuel chapter 3, our reading there, 
And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. The word of the Lord, the psalmist says also, is a lamp unto our feet, right? And a light unto our path from Psalm 119. But that word, that word of the Lord is seemingly silent too. Silent and dark from the close of the Old Testament with Malachi, then for 400 years, dark all the way to the beginning of the New Testament. It's dark and silent, leaving God's chosen people essentially deaf, dumb, and blind, uh, spiritually speaking. But just like in Samuel's time, which is a thousand years earlier, God in the gospel accounts also calls a prophet John the baptizer. This wilderness prophet John actually bridges the gap between the, the two testaments, the old and the new. Malachi, who gets the last words of the Old Testament, leaves off predicting John the Baptist's ministry of preparing the way for the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah. Then the Gospels, four centuries later now, document the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, the fulfillment in the person of an Elijah-like prophet who was to come and prepare God's people for the Christ. But even before John, God first sends his messenger angel, Gabriel, who foretells of John, and he says, he, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he tells this to Elizabeth. Even from his mother's womb. So he's pretty unique in that. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Still yet, before John begins his role in the wilderness, God's not done with the deployment of his holy angels. It's only a matter of months after Gabriel's appearance to both Elizabeth and Mary that the Christmas angel appears to the lowly, common stock shepherds that holy night. All part of that season we just, a beautiful season we just came through, Advent and Christmas. One angel, that is, whose hillside announcement of the Christ child suddenly gives way to a spectacular appearance of a great multitude of angels, a singing choir of angels. This page in redemptive history is their glory, their celebration too. Although Peter in his epistle qualifies the angel's experience as lacking what you and I incredibly enjoy. They, the angels, don't know the forgiveness of sins that this Christ child will bring to all God's people, both to Jews and to Gentiles. The angels lack that firsthand experience of being lost and now found, of being blind and now able to see like we can and like we sing about under God's amazing grace. You don't want to go too far with this now, but you almost sense a twinge of jealousy in how the angels look on at humanity's rescue operation from that heavenly perspective. Says Peter, it was revealed to the angels that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which even angels long to look. Things accompanying our salvation, our redemption, 
moving from darkness back into God's marvelous light. That sudden bursting of the skies with the whole angelic heavenly host lighting up that dark countryside gets followed up again with the sky bursting open at the Lord's, um, Lord Jesus' baptism. Well, we looked at just last week. St. Mark's description there was, as you may recall, quote, and when Jesus came up out of the water immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open. So you got this almost violent act going on there. And that's the cue for the dove to come down. And the Father's voice speaks aloud, you are my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. This is yet again another beautiful example of what someone called meekness. Not to be confused with weakness, although weakness will have its place in the kingdom to come as well. The definition of meekness, on the other hand, I heard described as, quote, strength under restraint. I like that. Meekness is strength under restraint. So you have the one angel at first with his singular greeting, fear not. Then you see 10,000 angels and you have to ask, okay, now can I show a little fear? If one is enough to cause dread and your knees to shiver. At his baptism, as I mentioned, the heavens are torn open and it's looking like those times in the Old Testament for everybody who was there at the baptism of our Lord. They could be thinking very uh, well of the people of God who saw that lightning on Mount Sinai. They witnessed the cloud lowering down uh, and they witnessed uh, the cloud emitting flashes of lightning and sounding off peals of thunder. And the only thing worse than all that for the people of Israel, and this is in Exodus 20 here, was when the people heard that otherworldly, earth-trembling voice of Yahweh himself. At this point, they literally begged Moses not to let God directly speak to the nation ever again. They said, Moses, you go up the mountain by yourself or take your brother Aaron. And you talk to God as much as you want up there. But we are opting out, please, on account of the power, the strength of the voice of God at that volume. At Jesus' baptism, such a comparable show of strength um, from the power of heaven, it was similarly sizing up to be a violent tearing and then that kind of almighty voice of the Father. But then, just at that moment, right when you're expecting a crack of thunder, a bolt of lightning, instead, a gentle, white, dove-like apparition comes down from heaven and alights upon the Lord. And you all heard uh, the cooing of a dove before, right? That gentle cooing. The Holy Spirit, like a dove, just peacefully flutters down like a gentle snow and alights on Jesus. That's strength under restraint. Remember, the Holy Spirit was brooding over the waters at creation and everything by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the spoken word, uh, was created ex nihilo out of nothing. That's power. This is actually the Holy Spirit's anointing of the Christ or the Messiah uh, for that foreordained 
rescue mission on which, in earnest now, Jesus embarks, the Son of God. And unless you get the impression that this meekness could easily get confused with weakness, what is the first thing that this cooing dove does to his anointed one, the Christ? Well, from Mark chapter 1, it says, quote, at once the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. So this dove is pretty hardcore. And it's with this Holy Spirit, not just with the water, uh, as was John's baptism, but it is with this powerful yet gentle Holy Spirit that Jesus will baptize, the same Jesus about whom John also was very clear. After me comes one more powerful than I. And Jesus made the comment that John was the greatest ever born of a woman. So he was great in and of himself, and he says, I'm not even um, able to untie, I'm not worthy to untie the latch on his uh, sandals. And as we see Jesus calling now his first disciples, Andrew and Peter, Philip and Nathaniel, we shall see then on full display, instance after instance of both his almighty power over certain evil enemies, demons, death itself, dangerous weather. And these instances juxtaposed then with incredible instances of restraint, most notably at the cross, where he allowed himself to be physically restrained by rope, by nails, and he allowed himself to be crucified and die. The God-man humbling himself, even to death, restrained most truly by his steadfast love for undeserving sinners. Undeserving sinners like all of us who are gathered here today. Now, knowing your heart, knowing your thoughts, your weaknesses, your hopes and fears, Jesus saw, nevertheless, your call to faith. By the power of that Holy Spirit, he claimed even the whole Christian church on earth. And so it is, he intercedes for us, even today, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And it's the Holy Spirit now whom he breathed on his disciples and whom he promised to come with the baptism in his name, who has invaded our privacy, uh, but it is a happy invasion. And now he dwells within our body as his temple. And by that same spirit, then, we stand with Nathaniel, with the disciples, and we make our confession by the power of the Holy Spirit. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Amen. And may he who began this good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.